Hello, readers. Chuck Palahniuk is a best-selling author whose work includes Fight Club, Choke, Invisible Monsters, Stranger Than Fiction, and the book we're talking about today. Consider this, Moments in My Writing Life After Which Everything Was Different. Chuck, thank you for the time. How are you today? I am good. Thank you for trying this other number. We have a snowstorm here and our uh, landlines are down. You're in uh, Portland, is that correct? Yeah, I'm east of Portland in a place called the Columbia Gorge. Gotcha. I, I lived in Ashland, Oregon for a little bit, so I'm familiar with the uh, the random January snowstorm that happens in that part of the country. So uh, best of luck not have it, not being too affected other than the uh, phone line thing. No, it's gorgeous. It's like uh, being uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. <laughs> Love that. Chuck, in the intro of this book... Consider this, you mentioned an apprehension to writing a book on writing, but here we are. So what was your goal with writing Consider This? Um, I started to panic because these four huge legends of writing endorsed Fight Club when it was first published. And it was uh, the book itself was nothing at that time, but Catherine Dunn and uh, Robert Stone and Barry Hanna and Tom Jones all came forward and endorsed it. And... Uh, most recently, Catherine Dunn died, and all four of them had died. And uh, I started to panic, thinking that all the really valuable things that other writers, that my heroes had taught me, were going to be lost with me if my plane ever went down. So I wanted to, in some way, you know, curate those things and, uh, and preserve them. Other than you, Tom Spanbauer's presence is maybe more frequent than anyone else in this book. For the sake of context, for some of what we'll be talking about through the course of this conversation, who is Tom Spanbauer? Tom Spanbauer is a writer originally from Idaho who moved to New York uh, to study a style called minimalism that was being taught at Columbia University by a famous editor named Gordon Lish, who was himself a minimalist writer. And then Tom moved from New York to Portland, where for the last 20, 30 years, he's been teaching a workshop that teaches uh, minimalist style. Speaking of education, you actually graduated from the University of Oregon down in Eugene with a journalism degree in 1986. Did you strive to be a certain type of journalist or was that major more of a means to scratch the writing itch for you? You know, that really was the that was supposed to be the safe bet. You know, don't study fiction writing, study journalism, because there'll be jobs there. And uh, I just, from 1980, I couldn't look forward and see what the Internet would do to things. Hmm. Who was Bob Maul, and what was the best advice he ever gave you? Bob Maul was this little fire plug of a guy with a big walrus mustache, and he ran a bookstore called 23rd Avenue Books in Portland. And he also founded the, the, the Regional Booksellers Association for the Pacific Northwest. And after I did my first Fight Club event for him, Bob took me aside and he said, if you want to make a career out of this, you want to do this for a living, you have got to have a book out at least every year, at most every 16 months. Because after 16 months, the reading public completely forgets who you are. Have you found that to be the case in your writing career, that when you wait longer in between releasing something, that uh, it does take a little bit more to get a buzz going? You know, at this point, I've released about 25 different books, 
and graphic novels and travel guides and coloring books. And I've had a couple movies made from my work. So I'm not sure if people would forget about me, but I would be harder to launch if I went longer between books. You suggest that when telling a story, a writer should consider providing texture by mixing three different types of communication, description, instruction, and exclamation. Now, most writers include description naturally, but what are the importance of instruction and exclamation? You know, when you move to instruction, which is basically in the imperative, the second person, you know, when you're telling someone walk down the hall, uh, open the door, look out the window, uh, you are breaking that fourth wall. And just that different, that subtle shift between third person description and second person imperative is enough to keep their attention engaged. Just that different texture of information, uh, you know, keeps the narrative fresh in their mind. On that note, shifting the point of view runs counter to some formal writing trainings, but you suggest it's actually an occasionally a good idea to do so, to shift that point of view. Why is that? You know, I'm not necessarily shifting the point of view, because according to the style that that Tom taught us, first person uh, writing from the eye has the greatest authority, because there is someone... Uh, a character present to take responsibility for the telling of the story. And eventually we'll find out the context for why the story is being told. But the trick is to hide that eye as much as possible because readers recoil from the pronoun I because it constantly reminds them that they themselves are not living this story. So you can... Ideally, you want to write first person, but writing first person, you want to be able to shift into second person and third person as you need to create kind of distance or intimacy between the story and the reader. Kind of like, I think of, you know, long shots, medium shots, and close-ups in film. Hmm. That's an interesting analogy to uh, make there with that point. And still on the subject of textures, what exactly is attribution? Attribution is any kind of a signpost inside of dialogue that lets the reader know who is saying that line of dialogue. And so it's as simple as, you know, he said, or she said, or I said. And what it does is it keeps dialogue very clear. We don't get that big cascade down the page of unattributed dialogue that confuses us and forces the reader to count backwards to figure out who's saying what eventually. But attribution can also be inserting a gesture. You know, he said this, and then he touched his forehead, or, or then he, you know, petted the dog. It can be a gesture. It can be any signpost, as long as it's a signpost that lets us know who said the thing. And it also controls the pacing of how the dialogue occurs in the reader's mind because the reader won't read it necessarily exactly the way an actor would read it. So you want to use attribution or gesture within the dialogue so that there are these pauses, there's, uh, there are these pauses and the dialogue is delivered the way an actor would in, in really effective chunks 
You mentioned your book, Fight Club, a little bit earlier in this conversation. It created one of the most memorable lists of sets or social rules in modern literary history. Everyone knows the first and second rules of Fight Club. Why is that such an effective storytelling device? Hmm. It's, I always think of song. I always think of songs. I always think of stories like songs uh, that the best short stories have a hook to them. Um, and that the hook kind of encapsulates the entire song, brings the whole song to mind. And so when I set out to write a short story, and originally Fight Club was a short story, I always try to come up with a hook that can be used repeatedly like a chorus anytime I want to change tense or change location within a story. So I don't have to constantly walk the reader from one situation to another. I can just pass I can just jump through time and jump through space by inserting a chorus like the rules of Fight Club. Somebody else who is pretty good at that is Stephen King. And you tell a story about Stephen King in this book. What is the Stephen King story? Ah, people should have to buy the book to read the Stephen King story. That's fair. Uh, It's a little involved. Do you want me to go ahead and and go through the whole thing? You know what? I will just suggest to people, buy the book for the Stephen King story. There are so many great personal stories that you tell about your time as an author and being out on tour, and I may pull one of those out of you uh, before it's all said and done. But we'll uh, hold off on the Stephen King story, and uh, hopefully people will go out and buy, uh, consider this as a part of that enjoyable reading experience. Now, uh, back to your mentor, Tom Spanbauer. He taught you that... Once you establish your authority in writing, you can do anything. What did he mean by that, and why is it so important? Once you convince the reader that you're telling the truth, that you're a person that can be trusted, you're an intelligent, or your character is an intelligent, clever, um, interesting person, then the reader will be very invested in the story, and the reader will, will believe everything that happens beyond that point. I remember when they were filming the movie Fight Club, uh, someone asked David Fincher on set, do you think that the viewer will accept the fact of the big plot twist? And David said, if the, if the viewer has accepted all of the unconventional things up to this point, then they will very easily accept the giant plot twist. And so um, Proving your authority isn't something you do just once. It's something that you do ongoingly through, throughout a work. But you know, eventually, if you do it right and you do it often enough, then the reader will want to believe everything that's happening. Does likability matter when establishing authority? No. In fact, I think modern audiences kind of can sniff out when a story is being too likable or uh, pandering. And so I think that modern audiences want to be a little bit sort of, you know, they're the more likely to engage with a sort of a slightly abrasive uh, character. Tom also taught you a lesson at a point when you were really struggling to get published, and it had to do with the quality of books that make it to print. What exactly did he do there? You know, Tom gave me at one point where I, when I had gotten some huge amount of rejections for short stories, for manuscripts, 
Tom took a book down from one of his shelves and gave it to me and asked me to read it over the, the following week. And when I came back to workshop, he asked me to, uh, to say what I loved about it. And I, I thought the book was extremely boring and nothing had happened in the book. And I didn't like the characters, but I didn't want to offend Tom. So I pretended to like the book. And eventually Tom explained, Tom forced me to admit how much I had disliked the book. <laughs> uh, and then Tom explained that he also disliked the book, but that the book was proof that very big, very rich publishing houses would publish books, not necessarily based on their literary merit or how interesting they were, that there are a lot of really lousy books that get published. That's a hell of a point that he made right there in uh, making you read a, a really bad book to uh, to get to that. But uh, clearly it made a lasting impact on you. And you also write about selling out in the chapter titled, or one of the chapters titled, because there are multiple chapters titled A Postcard from the Tour. While I don't want you to spoil the Super Bowl story necessarily, people need to get out and buy the book and read the book for that one. What is the worst you've sold out? And has the idea of selling out changed for you since you first gained notoriety? You know, the worst I have sold out, uh, that is hard to say. Hmm. Boy, you know, I, I felt kind of icky when I was sat down at BuzzFeed and uh, just out of the blue asked to present Fight Club for Kids, which was the skit that they had completely put together. But I had no idea what I was walking into. Suddenly, I was given this book, I was on camera, uh, and everybody involved was expecting me to perform Fight Club for Kids so they could tape it and, uh, and use it as content. And I just, rather than be unpleasant, I just kind of sucked it up and did it and uh, did my best, and it's kind of a classic now. Hmm. How has your idea on selling out changed since you first published Fight Club? Um, boy, huh. I have to say, if somebody offered me health benefits and enough money, I would take a university job in a, in a New York second. Hmm. You point something out that I hadn't realized before in this fantastic book, Consider This. Fast food TV commercials never show fat people eating their food. How does that relate to the concept of tension? How does it relate to tension? Yes. I, it doesn't relate to tension. It was just kind of a tangent, just sort of a side uh, comment uh, in a larger discussion of limiting your themes so that you're not introducing new things and dissipating your tension part of the way through a story. The point was that fast food commercials are only going to show you things related to their product. They're not going to show you anything that distracts you from their product and the effect of their product. So, you know, the observation about thin people in fast food commercials was just a sort of side note. I gotcha. What's it like to write something so powerful that it has forced literally hundreds of people to pass out at public readings like what has occurred numerous times when you've read the short story Guts? It makes me feel really proud that I've chosen writing 
as my form of storytelling. Uh, I think we forget that that stories told aloud can have the same power in adulthood that they had when we were children. And I think we're always trying to get back to that, that, that power that stories had when, when they were told to us over campfires and, and uh, on Halloween night or by babysitters. But simply those told out loud stories, uh, it's nice to see they can still be that powerful. Do you have any theories as to why the line corn and peanuts seems to be the trigger for most people? It is. It's about really tangible, particularized things that can be envisioned and that instantly state the thing without stating it overtly. And it's a horrible confirmation in terms that people can picture in that moment and that seems to be the, the what pushes people over the over the edge. You learn from retelling an experience as the new guy getting hazed at a blue collar job that you held in your younger days that a lot of people have these stories of initiation in new jobs or fields of study. And you share a story that was told by a French veterinarian who responded to what you were initially saying at a cocktail party. Well, I'm not going to ask you what happened there because people need to read the book. Why are these sorts of hazing rituals, assuming that they are not compromising an individual physically or or too bad psychologically, why are they still important in this day and age? The hazing stories, uh, I use them in the book to demonstrate how it's not a story that shuts people down that is a great story. Uh, a great story is a story that you can tell at a party that instantly makes other people lean forward and tell a similar but more intense story from their own life. So by me telling my very sort of uh, flat hazing story, it prompts everyone present to tell a story that's even better, but very similar to that story. And that is how you kind of develop themes from the lives of, you know, hundreds or thousands of people. Um, Hazing stories, you know, hazing itself, it does give everyone a kind of baseline experience that they all had as as a new hire. And so that everyone has at least that experience in common as they work together in the future. So they do have that redemptive thing going for them. Now, Tom Spambauer had you and your fellow writers do something called Dangerous Writing, where you were encouraged to explore your deepest, secret, unresolved anxiety. What is that for you in 2020? You know, well, see, that's the thing, is that you explore it through a metaphor. So you never state it. If you state it uh, explicitly, then you're not doing your job. By making it into a metaphor, you open it up so that other people think it's their problem as well. And people can kind of impose their own meaning on whatever the metaphor is that you're using. So you never state the unfixable thing. You fix it through a kind of narrative, you know, masquerade situation. And that fixes it for you, but it also kind of fixes what might be a very dissimilar problem for your reader. Last thing here, Chuck. Tom also recommended that you write about the moment after which everything is different. What is one such moment for you in your life? 
Oh, I thought that in middle school, I was a kind of a popular kid because I helped a lot of kids with their homework and I let a lot of kids cheat off of my, my work in school. And one year we had this beautiful girl named Glenda who moved to our school and she was uh, completely charming and she had a Southern accent and, uh, and her parents were kind of rich compared to most of the people in our little farming community. And one day she was taking a book out of her locker and the book fell and broke the, the necklace of beads that she was wearing. And at that moment, I helped her pick up the beads and I was down on the floor kind of nose to nose with her as we were collecting these beads. And Glenda said, with her Southern accent, she said, You're, you all are very sweet, aren't you? And she said, uh, you know, when I moved here, everybody told me that y'all was a retarded boy. And I was just devastated. I really had thought that maybe I was a popular kid or a passable kid. And then to find out from a total stranger that most of my peers thought that, uh, that I was kind of a damaged and backward person. And, uh, it uh, it really changed how I thought about uh, my so-called friends. That would be crushing at just about any point in life, but especially when you're right there on the edge of adolescence. I can only imagine how that affected you going forward. You don't take much for granted after that. and You get the thicker skin. That's a good way to put it. Well, uh, Chuck, whether or not you realize it, you called me out in this book. I am a white guy who loves to read and thinks everyone should also love to read, but I blame people like you for why I feel this way. Thank you so much for providing so many great reasons for me to continue reading over the years. And thank you so much for the conversation today as well. Thank you very much.